Okay, so all right, and welcome. This is Beck Barnes and Jim Stedman of Cotton Grower Magazine, and we are coming at you once again from the prestigious Cotton Grower Studios here in stormy Memphis, Tennessee, with the Cotton Companion podcast. And um, here in this, what are we, the third week of October, and uh, whether you are returning from that Sunbelt Ag Expo down there in South Georgia or out there on the sun-drenched harvest-ready fields of California, we thank you for joining us today. Uh, I am joined, as always, by my partner, Mr. Jim Stebman. Howdy, Jim. Hello, Beck. Hello, everybody. Uh, we are in studio today, and Jim will have noticed, y'all can't see me, but I'm probably looking a little disheveled today, and that's owing to the fact that I was woken up with a jolt in the wee hours of the morning here. What's today? The 20th? 21st. October 21st. Yes. Uh, if, when you're listening to this, you'll think back. Uh, we had tornado sirens going off uh, in my neighborhood here in Memphis, Tennessee, in the wee hours of the morning. It has been a stormy past 12 hours or so here. Um, mercifully, we did not have any actual tornadoes, but it was storming pretty good, very hard winds. I did hear, I believe, of some stor- uh, rather some tornadoes uh, in Texas. And I hope that uh, nobody else had any more that I haven't heard of. But, um, yeah, I had just actually just got done on my Cotton Grower Twitter account, uh, Beck at, or at Beck underscore CG Mag, um, how my pots on my back patio in the yard were just having a, a, a just in full bloom here on this uh, Indian <laughs> summer we're having on the back end of October, and then, yeah, boy, a huge storm came through overnight. Like I say, jumped me out of bed. I know, Stephen, y'all had uh, some, y'all had the same stuff, dealing with the same stuff down there, I believe, weren't right, you? Right, absolutely. I'm right on the Mississippi-Tennessee border, and we had uh, apparently some trees down on, on the road leading from uh, from Mississippi to Tennessee. I don't think that was intentional. Uh, yeah. I, don't, I don't think I don't think they the state of, I don't think out. yeah I don't think the state of Tennessee was actually trying to close <laughs> this morning, but you know nevertheless uh, something was there. It's gone now, and uh, and life moves on. Yeah, yeah, we know that uh, y'all are uh, in the full throes of harvest, and we're going to get into that. Of course, we got a crop progress. We're going to update you on, and that means you're just kind of holding your breath and hoping for no wild weather like what we saw here overnight. So. Um, we are right there with you and hoping everything goes smooth from here on out. Um, first things first, though, uh, before we get into this episode, we want to bring you a short message from our sponsors at Phytogen. Phytogen is pleased to sponsor the Cotton Companion, bringing you the latest news to help you thrive all season long. Okay, so that is a timely Phytogen ad, as always, because right now we're going to bring you a brief custom content segment featuring our custom content editor, Robin Sichtberg, and she recently spoke with Dr. Jason Woodward, a Phytogen Cotton Development Specialist for North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. So we're going to bring you that interview right now. Hello, I'm Robin Sipper, custom content editor for Meister Media Worldwide, publisher of Cotton Grower Magazine, and I'd like to welcome back on the program today Dr. Jason Woodward, who is Phytogen Cotton Development Specialist for North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. Welcome back. Thanks, Robin. On the last episode, we talked about evaluating fields and soil sampling for nematodes. So today we're going to talk about how growers can protect against nematodes. First, let's talk about the big problem nematode for the cotton belt, which is the root knot nematode, also known as RKN. Uh, What can growers do to protect against this pest? 
Yeah, historically, producers have been able to use crop rotation and, and chemical treatments to try to minimize damage caused by root-knot nematodes. Fortunately, we're, we're available now with opportunities to use native breeding traits and genetic resistance to help alleviate problems caused by uh, root-knot nematode or RKN. Uh, Phytogen varieties currently have a dual-gene root-knot resistance that's built in. Uh, This native breeding trait affects the nematodes in two separate ways. One of those genes is reducing the amount of damage that we see on the roots, making that plant more efficient at picking up water and nutrients and allowing it to meet its genetic potential, while the second gene is actually limiting reproduction of the nematode, making pest pressure lower in subsequent years when we're coming back with a cotton crop or another susceptible crop such as soybeans, sweet potatoes, tobacco, and such. Well, that's good news. I know that's an important way because we're losing different control methods for nematodes. I've also heard some good news that Phytogen has another phytogen breeding trait on the horizon that will protect against reniform nematodes. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, across the cotton belt, the reniform nematode is is the second most economically important nematode that we face. And and much like with the root knot nematode resistance that we just mentioned, we're also in the process of evaluating reniform resistance. Currently, that process is in the stage of a, a proof of concept stage where we're trying to identify the effect of resistance on reniform populations. Uh, we'll be moving forward with that in the next growing season with our Phygen Horizon Network and then really honing in on, on positioning of reniform resistant varieties for their commercial release in 2021. Well, that's excellent news for growers who are dealing with that particular type of nematode. I want to thank you so much for being on the program. If you want more information, you can always go to phytogen.com. Okay, a big thank you to Robin and to Dr. Woodward there, and we're going to get things rolling on this, the 58th episode of The Cotton Companion, and it promises to be a good one. Uh, Jim, as always, going to lead us in our news segments. He's talking about everything from crop progress. Once again, we've we've gotten smarter here at Cotton Grower. <laughs> we have waited until late in the day on these days when we're podcasting uh, because it's a Monday and USDA just came out with their crop progress report and it just hit, uh, they just released it about 30 minutes ago. So uh, hence we are now podcasting. So we're, we got that one that's fresh off the presses for you. He's going to be talking about that and uh, everything from that to Chinese defoliation drones because we have our eyes everywhere across the globe here at Cotton Grower Magazine. So uh, after that, right? I mean, that's right. Spanning the globe, forgotten use. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, So after that, we are going to be um, bringing you an interview that Jim actually conducted with Mr. Harrison Ashley. He is, many of you will know, uh, the vice president of Jenner Services over at the National Cotton Council. And we know that ginning season is in full swing. Many of y'all have your fingers in that, uh, aside from just being customer or rather uh, clients of gins. Uh, many of y'all are ginners yourselves. And so um, you guys are burning the midnight oil, going all hours right now trying to get this crop taken care of. So we thought it'd be a good time to talk to Harrison and talk about the state of the U.S. ginning industry. So in keeping with that harvest season theme, I also wanted to very briefly, uh, on the front end of this episode, talk about picker safety. I ran a, a rather harvest equipment safety. I'm from the Mississippi Delta, so I say picker when I mean harvester. Uh, even after 10 years at this magazine, I've got to be conscious of those of y'all who have... The guys who strip cotton. Strip or, cotton, or, yes. Are wagging a finger at you right yeah, now. Exactly. So yes. uh, harvester safety. Uh, we wrote a story on this. I believe it was in our September issue. Um, 
about some things that you can do to, uh, you know, prevent or or just be safe in the event of a fire on your harvest equipment. Um, because this is a topic that I became aware of because I occasionally waste time on farm Twitter and farm Facebook. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's been a spate of uh, YouTube videos, like there's a little, a little cottage industry of YouTube videos of harvest equipment catching on fire, uh, cotton harvest equipment catching on fire. And so we are all too aware that that's something that uh, happens, unfortunately. So uh, it's not a joke. It's a serious emergency that can happen to you. And we know that it's life-threatening. And so we wanted to briefly summarize some easy-to-follow uh, tips to keep your equipment and your rear end fire-free, fire-safe this fall. So uh, if you're listening to this episode, take these things into consideration. If make and if you got a labor who drives harvest equipment for you, make sure they're aware of these. We're calling it, or I'm calling it rather, five quick tips for fire safety in your picker or stripper this year. Uh, drum roll, please. I, actually, I don't require a drum roll, Jim. Uh, the first of my of our five <laughs> tips. Uh, number one is to keep up with regular machine maintenance. Uh, I spoke with Mr. Steve Monaco at First Fire Safety. He has a product uh, for specifically for cotton uh, picker, cotton stripper, uh, fire prevention. Uh, anyhow, at, that's at First Fire Safety. So anyhow, he says that servicing your burr extractor and the header of the machine is a useful example of preventative maintenance. And uh, too, too often, these fires will start as a result of poor maintenance. So second tip repair and clean any leaking fuel or oil lines immediately. Uh, we know there's too many ways for a spark to kick up in a piece of harvest equipment. Flint rocks, branches, and electrical wiring all can be the source of a spark. And if you have uh, uh, accelerants such as fuel or oil spills on your machinery, you know, that's a bad mixture. Uh, the third tip here, clean your machine off completely at least two times a day. When I spoke to people about that, my initial reaction was, boy, that sounds excessive. But uh, I am assured, I've been assured, that that's something that y'all out there on the farm are accustomed to. Uh, cleaning your machinery often throughout the day is a great way mm -hmm. to make sure that, um, you know, at, in areas like the engine compartment or under the accumulator and under the conveyor belt, those are trouble spots. And by cleaning that those areas off, you can make sure you're keeping your crop and yourself safe. Fourth tip inspect your fire extinguishers. I guess tip number one there, tip A would be have fire extinguishers and fire equipment on the machine. Uh, but for B is inspect those pieces, uh, those fire extinguishers, those other equipment to make sure they're in good working order before you get out there to make sure you're covered in the event of an emergency. Fifth tip is more of a practical thing. Uh, as you're in the picker or stripper, be aware of wind conditions and the wind direction uh, fires are much more likely with dried conditions and high winds. Boy, that sounds uh, a lot like the entirety of West Texas. Uh, so harvester operators should be more cautious in those conditions. Uh, we, uh, the folks I talked to said, in the event of a fire, this is very important here, know which way the wind conditions are blowing and pull straight into that so that if you did not have a cover in the cab of that harvester, the wind would be blowing directly onto your face. And that way that wind will blow that fire out of the towards the back and away from the equipment and also away from yourself. That's very important if you remember one thing from this summary. If you in the event of a fire on your harvester, pull that tractor to where you are facing looking directly into the wind. So 
All right, Jim, I am done with my safety soapbox here. I am going to get out of the way and let you take it away with the news segment. I'm going to let you sit back, cross your arms, and just listen. Okay, I'm for ha- a few minutes, happy to okay? do that. <laughs> All right. Uh, news for, uh, for this segment, as Beck mentioned, we're going to start with the, uh, the crop progress numbers that are hot off the USDA press this afternoon. These are for the week ending October 20th. And for cotton, in terms of open bowls, uh, I think it's fair to say this, uh, you know, the crop's essentially done. Uh, national average is showing that 93% of the acres are now reporting open bowls, and every cotton-producing state is now having, now has percentages ranking uh, between 90 and, and 100%. So realistically, uh, it's ready to go out and pick or strip if you're not already doing that, depending certainly on your location. Harvest numbers jumped 8% in the past week. Uh, we're now showing that 40% of the U.S. crop has been harvested, and that's 5% ahead of the five-year average for this date. So it's a little amazing what a little good weather can do for us at this point. Yeah. Uh, activities reported in every single cotton state now, uh, with percentages ranging from 4% harvested in Kansas up to 81% complete in Louisiana. Uh, now, we had some wet weather in the southeast, and certainly the, the weather that came through the Mid-South today uh, may slow some things down a bit in those areas but there's some good forecasts for the High Plains and the Northern Plains areas, and likely we're gonna see a lot of growers hitting the field this week out in those areas. Uh, the crop condition uh, is kind of continuing its weekly dance with percentage shifts from one segment to the other. Uh, this week, we're showing 41% of the U.S. crop rated good to excellent, 36% rated fair, and 23% rated poor to very poor. So. That's the, uh, those are the, the exclusive numbers out of USDA for this week. Um, we're going to turn our attention next to, uh, uh, again, back to Washington for, you know, for, from a, a certain perspective here. But the uh, U.S. Food and Drug Administration, I believe last week, gave the green light for the genetically modified low gossipol cotton uh, that's been developed at Texas A&M. Uh, they now have the approval to use that for human consumption which paves the way for a protein-packed food source that the folks at Texas A&M said could help tackle global malnutrition. Now this decision on the plant means it can be used not only for fiber, but that the seed can be used as food for people and for all types of animals. Now, uh, Kiri Raythor, Dr. Kiri Raythor, who's a Texas A&M plant biotechnologist, uh, said scientists are holding discussions with different seed companies and hope to have this plant commercially available within about five years. Uh, they are also exploring regulatory approval in other countries, starting with Mexico. Now, as, as, as we all know, ordinary cottonseed is basically unfit for humans and for many animals to eat because of high levels of gossipol, which can be toxic to, uh, to humans and to animals. Uh, the Texas A&M team used the RNAi technology that basically silenced a gene in the cotton seed that virtually eliminated gossipol from the seed, but the gossipol was left at natural levels in the rest of the plant to help guard against insects and disease, and the fiber is certainly not affected by it whatsoever. Uh, USDA lifted regulatory prohibition on, uh, on planting and cultivating this cotton plant last year. Uh, so that was out of the way before, you, before FDA made their uh, decision here within the past week. So uh, that's good news in terms of uh, 
of looking at a new segment for, for a cotton plant, uh, and certainly looking at uh, how it can be advantageous to a lot of world's uh, the world's cotton-producing countries, particularly those in Asia and Africa that have populations that are still facing malnutrition, uh, things that could be addressed with uh, the products from this new plant. Yeah, uh, well, it, it, absolutely that much, but also potentially uh, added value for our for our producers here stateside. Definitely, too, you know? definitely. Uh, I think one of the things they're looking at in terms of expanding segments, particularly for animal use, uh, is looking at uh, feed for poultry and pigs, which they have not been able to get into a cottonseed, and also for uh, farmed aquatic species like fish and shrimp. So uh, some new markets opening up, and uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed and keep an eye on that for over the, over the next few years. Yeah. God bless those researchers there Absolutely. At, uh, at A&M and elsewhere. That has not been a short-term research project, let's, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's safe to say. Um, Beck mentioned one of the things about uh, about China, and we're gonna we're gonna shift focus over there just because it was kind of an interesting story. Um, I know there are a lot of folks out there listening who like to kind of keep up with farming technology and innovations. Well, the Chinese company XAG, and I'm I'm just giving you the initials because I can't pronounce that. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> has started its takeoff for harvest time spraying operation using unmanned aerial systems, or affectionately known as drones for the third consecutive year out in China's Xinjiang cotton-producing region. Uh, According to the report I've seen, since late August, there have been over 1,500 drone pilots and 1,000 crop protection teams using approximately 3,000 sets of this company's P-series plant protection drones to help local cotton growers spray defoliant. it is the world's largest cotton defoliation operation using fully autonomous drones. Uh, it's, it obviously makes things a lot more cost-effective and uh, and, e- and uh, ecologically friendly uh, for them. Through mid-September, they were they're estimating one million hectares, or or roughly two and a half million acres, of cotton fields have been defoliated with this crop spraying drones. Uh, the accumulated service record for this year is expected to exceed 1.3 million hectares or 3.2 million acres, and that's a 200% increase compared to what they did last year. Did I hear you say they were autonomous, meaning that they are? Well, they have pilots. I mean, they have. Okay. They're, they're they're guided or they're programmed. Okay. But I mean, just the whole the whole scope of it. I mean, literally, if you sit here and close your eyes and think about a you know thousands and thousands of acres of cotton fields. And you've got these drones flying back and forth. And these are not small drones either. I mean, these, yeah. these there's a certain amount of size to these and able to, uh, to carry the, the defoliant. But, you know, you've got roughly, what did they say, 3,000 of these things moving around out there. Yeah, sounds dystopian. It does, doesn't it's it? It's a slightly different regulatory situation over there in China than you <laughs> literally <laughs> would not fly here. In the U.S., which no, uh, for no pun intended. Right, yeah. right. Uh, next segment or next uh, next item I want to talk about briefly is uh, uh, we talked about a program several episodes ago that BASF had launched in terms of uh, of weed management and, and eliminating resistant weeds. They have also launched a new grower program that they're calling 2020 Agronomic Advantage. Uh, it offers flexibility and rewards for growers. It gives them the freedom to choose products and practices to help address 
uh, challenges that you may face like weed resistance. This program runs through September 30th of 2020 and it offers products across many different sites of action, uh, working across different trait platforms and BASF seed brands. The program is designed to incentivize growers to make the right choices for overall profitability on their acres. And of course, for product selection, BASF is offering a range of herbicide and seed options within this program. Now, the Advantage program has options for several different crops. And uh, for example, let's look at cotton. Uh, for growers who purchase FiberMax and or Stoneville cotton seed, plus Ingenia and Liberty herbicide and or Liberty herbicide, you can earn up to uh, basically $6.40 per acre with the opportunity to earn an additional $0.50 cents per acre with each added BASF herbicide. So it's an interesting program. Uh, it's one of the first ones we've seen announced for this year. Obviously, if you'd like more information about it, uh, you can go to BASF uh, website online and then the uh, just type in agronomicadvantage.com and it will give you uh, all the details on the program. Very good, Jim. And uh, oh, you got one more. You got a surprise. I have, one. I have a surprise for Beck. Actually, oh it's not a surprise. And this is this is uh, this is just sort of a a recognition of, of this time of year. And I, uh, this really comes from our shameless publicity category, which we are not shy about using no, no. here at Cotton Grower. Shame free. Uh, but this is a time of year when there are a lot of open bowls and, and harvest underway that we we really look forward to in terms of photo submissions to Cotton Grower for our Cotton Kids page. Uh, it's a very popular feature in the magazine. I can't tell you when that segment started. It was decades okay, ago. Okay, so you definitely here when I got here uh, yeah. 10, 10, 11 years ago. Yeah, decades ago and, uh, and still remains one of our most popular features in the magazine. So if you want to submit a, cotton, a photo to Cotton Kids, and we certainly hope that you will, you have two options, two ways to get it to us. First, you can send it electronically via email to me at jstedman, that's J-S-T-E-A-D-M-A-N, at meistermedia.com. Or if you just have a printed picture, you can mail that photo to Cotton Kids. The address is 37733 Euclid Avenue, that's E-U-C-L-I-D, in beautiful Willoughby, Ohio, uh, zip code 44094. Now, when you send the photos electronically or by mail, we do need a couple of extra things from you. First, we need your contact in, your contact information. We need the names name or the names of any children that are in the photo and your hometown. And we also need an expressly written permission granting Cotton Grower Magazine the ability to use this photo in our Cotton Kids pages. And yes, we do take special precautionary measures to ensure safety and protect the identity of all photo submissions. So uh, I just wanted to say submissions have started picking up over the last month or so from all corners of the Cotton Belt, and we certainly appreciate the families who have shared those photos of their youngsters. Uh, there's a page of new, fa new faces coming in our November issue, and we're starting to collect photos at this point for December and for our issues early next year, so please join us. If you've got a, uh, a cute kid that uh, you'd like to see in the pages of Cotton Grower Magazine. That's right. Yeah, if y'all don't do it, it's going to it's gonna be nothing but uh, my nieces and nephews, Jim's our friend's <laughs> children, uh, because I hear a lot from my buddies who farm about getting their kids. Boy, I get 
uh, hear about that quite often on occasion, to be honest. Uh, but anyhow. So that's where those come from. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Disproportionate amount from uh, Leland, Mississippi. <laughs> uh, so anyhow, uh, Jim, I appreciate you. I do want to rein you in there because now we want to bring our listeners this interview that you conducted with Harrison Ashley. I believe y'all talked about the state of the American ginning industry. Is there, could you summarize briefly? Kind of, I know it was a, it was a broad yeah. interview. Y'all went kind of long. Yeah, it was. It was not so. a. It was not a minute interview by any any, yeah. any shape of the imagination. Uh, no, we just wanted to with uh, with the ginning season uh, starting uh, already started in many many points of, of the southeast and the mid south, and uh, and certainly South Texas. I just want to take an, an opportunity to kind of get a feel for where the industry stands right now, what numbers are looking like in terms of gins, some of the issues that gins are facing or continue to face, and uh, you know, just an, an overall perspective on where we are and uh, and and what growers can uh, can look forward to when they when they're moving cotton to, from the field to uh, to their gin this year. All right, very good. We're going to bring you all that interview with Harrison Ashley right now. Welcome to this episode's Market Minute, where we're shifting gears again this week to discuss a, a pretty timely topic in cotton production right now, and that's ginning. Uh, we're joined today by Harrison Ashley. He's Vice President of Ginner Services for the National Cotton Council and also serves as Executive Vice President of the National Cotton Ginners Association. Harrison, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on your podcast. We're looking forward to it. Uh, when you look at USDA's most recent crop progress numbers, and uh, I believe released this week showing that 32% of the U.S. crop has already been harvested, and you've got 10 states that are sitting there already ahead of their five-year average for harvest on this date, uh, how is the ginning industry set up? Are they are they ready to go at this stage? Not counting South Texas, because right. we know they're they're almost done. Uh, were gins up, ready to go uh, as Considering how late this season started, you know it. it, it, it you're you're right. It, it is amazing how fast the harvest has has gone, especially with how late the crop was in terms of getting planted and, right. and, and emergence and and some of the issues during the growing season. Um, are the gens ready and up and ready to to, to handle <laughs> this crop? They are. Um, there are a lot of a lot of gins have have uh, already started, and if you look at the the Jennings and the Classics report, you can you know that's that's obvious. Mm-hmm. Of course, the majority of the of the uh, South Texas crop is is harvested and been classed. So now, as it moves northward, uh, a lot of those classing offices are just getting getting started uh, as well, uh, and well, along with the gins. But uh, to answer your question, yes, we're we're ready and uh, looking forward to a, a larger crop than we did last year. And that's that was that sort of leads to my next question. You know, USDA is projecting, I think, in their in their October report, uh, I think they've reduced the number mm-hmm. to twenty one point seven million bales. That's still a huge, huge amount of cotton. Uh, and I know we have seen a trend over the last couple of years. Uh, when a new gen is built, it's generally uh, larger, more efficient, and in some cases it may be, you know, a couple of gens merging into a new one. In some cases, it's new construction in areas where cotton production has increased, and there's there haven't been enough service, right? There haven't been enough gens in the area to to serve that. Uh, 
what's kind of the current current state of the industry right now, and can are we set up to efficiently handle twenty one point seven million bales? You 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 are correct um, in the fact that most of the gens that are being built now mm-hmm. are much more efficient, much larger. Uh, oftentimes, it's several smaller gens that have gone in and and decided to. Uh, to to build that larger, more efficient gen, which makes absolute sense. Sure. I think over the years, um, technology, uh, especially the the ability to haul the first the rectangular modules, now the round modules, greater and greater distances, is mm-hmm. is really accelerated that. Um, always give a report uh, to groups that come through, and and I have a an ongoing chart that shows, and sorry, you can't see the chart, but the chart that shows <laughs> just have to visualize what has had, what we've, what we've done over the, say, the last 30 years. Uh-huh. And we've had over a 75% reduction in cotton gins in that period of time, which, which is amazing. We have gone to 2,250 gins down to 532. Um, most of those gins, a lot of times, those gins that closed were those gins that had little of the of the new technologies available to them, and right. they through the years they've been replaced with with the the best uh, technology moving forward to to what we have now. These these gins that are now capable of ginning 150,000, 200,000 bales uh, consistently if the cotton is there. Um, question is, will the trend continue? Someone asked me what my thoughts were. Now, can you go lower than 532 cotton gins? And uh, so I gathered all the data uh, looking at the production, uh, the, uh, the, the the loss of gins over that 30-year time right. frame, uh-huh. did a forecast model, and lo and behold, yes, we can go lower. You can have more consolidation and fewer gins, and, and uh, now what's that bottom number? I I don't know. Yeah, nobody knows. Yeah, but but I th- I do think we will see more consolidation, larger gins being built to replace some of the smaller ones. It it just efficiencies mm-hmm. are, are it just makes sense in in many of those cases. Just out of curiosity, how long in general? How long does it take to get a, a brand new gen up and running, construction wise, equipment wise? You know, I, I I I keep in contact with some of the the, the manufacturers, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they already have they already have sales on the books for gens being built in 2020. Um, some of the I I, I received a, a message from one of them saying we're already beginning to deliver some of the equipment uh, for a gen that'll be built next year. So. Mm-hmm. Um, to answer your question, you know, I've been to sites where I didn't think they would gin cotton in the fall, and this was in the summertime. Right. And lo and behold, they're ginning they're cotton ginning in cotton. the fall. Yeah. It, it just depends on how many other gins and how much other equipment's being updated in other gins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can get a, you can get a gin uh, installed within a season. Cool. What are the you mentioned? Uh, obviously, we've talked about the reduction in the number of gins, mm-hmm. uh, and the and the industry's kind of absorbed that that issue pretty easily. What are what are some of the other issues the the gin industry is facing right now? What are the things that kind of keep you you know top of mind or, or maybe maybe keep you awake a little bit at night? 
Um, you know, we, we, we want the price to be at a level that the producers are are uh, uh, producing cotton. Right. You, you, mm-hmm. Gin can't do anything but gin cotton. Right. And with the incre- incredible investments that go into some of these larger gins now, $20 million, $24 million mm-hmm. are what you're talking about for some of these really large gins. Um, we've got to keep cotton growing in the United States. It's got to grow here. Uh, we've got to increase demand for cotton. We've got to increase our markets, mm-hmm. uh, overseas markets. We've right. got to do everything we can to make uh, U.S. cotton the cotton that's wanted in the world. And uh, if that is uh, increasing quality, if it's increasing efficiencies, uh, those are the things that we've got to do. That That's something that I think is very important. Uh, other issues, labor is one of the ones that you hear from one end of the belt to the other, and it's not just in the gen. It's also trying to find the module uh, haulers okay, uh-huh. uh, to, to move that mass of cotton to the gens. Can you imagine a 150,000 bale gen with, uh, if they're hauling modules, uh, how, much, how much cotton? And how much rolling stock that they have to have oh, yeah. to, to to feed those gins, mm-hmm. and and that is that is getting more difficult to find those drivers. Um, now, is this, are these these are drivers both that would work for their basically be gin employees, but also what about other trucking companies that would help? There are there are those companies that that mm-hmm. are uh, sub uh, subcontractors to the gins. Okay, and and uh, they will come in and, and haul cotton. There's a number of those across the belt, mm-hmm. uh, but that's that 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 is correct. Okay. Uh, it's not only the gens own trucks, but it's also some of the other companies that own trucks that mm-hmm. haul modules in the fall for farmers. One of the things about the round modules is you can use a, a tractor, a tractor trailer type right. truck with mm-hmm. a with a flatbed, so it can be used through the season for something else. But then at the uh, during the harvest season, they can they can haul modules. Right, I've seen I've seen those up and down you know the highways. Mm-hmm. What 10, 12, 10 or twelve of those round modules on there? It, it, it depends on the state and, <laughs> and, and the and the truck configuration. Right, right, yeah. absolutely. Uh, any other things? I know there was some regulation issues over the last couple of years. That uh, are those you know, kind of settled down, or are we still still wrestling with some of those? The, the national generators and the ginning organizations that that national generators represents OSHA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Department of Labor, um, wage and hour, um, those type regulations. It's just trying to make sure that the gens understand uh, these are the things that uh, this agency can come in and, and, and check and catch you sure. on and making sure that, that uh, the gens are, are following what is necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, since the, the Trump administration's come in, we've seen a we've not as seen as many uh, uh, comment uh, periods open for for various uh, regulations, which is which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. When it comes to air quality, uh, gins are of course fall under uh, the NAC standard, and uh, we're constantly monitoring those uh, new proposed regulations, and we haven't had any of those lately. I know there's some discussion about 
uh, opening uh, that uh, that up for review. So that's something that we'll have to monitor closely. But those are things that we we work with a chance to make sure that they are adhering to to the to the regulations. Mm -hmm. That's and that's one of the I guess one of the thing the the key components of the regional associations all have their safety programs mm -hmm. and and go around and do trainings to individual gens and things like that. Uh, but also wanted to talk about the educational side of it. I know uh, NCGA and the National Cotton Council and the regional associations have all spent a lot of time doing educational work on the, on avoiding plastic contamination. And uh, uh, that's all the way from the field through the through the ginning process. What are some of the suggestions that, that have been made? How are gins responding in that? I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that um, we have seen that increase in plastic contamination to the point that we now have a specific 7172 call, an extraneous matter, mm -hmm. for plastic. Okay. Uh, Contamination. That's part of the grading process? Yes. Okay. Of course, it's not only that contaminant that we're concerned with. We want to eliminate all contaminants from oil to whatever it is. Bark, leaves, exactly. things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So any, anything that's not cotton is considered a contaminant. So uh, that's the focus. But when it comes specifically to plastic, which is the big one that's ever got everybody's attention, uh, there's a, there's been some major educational program work that's gone on. Uh, I was telling uh, telling some of the staff not long ago here that there's not a single meeting that we go to where contamination and education is not discussed. Right. It's in every one of National Generous President's speeches. It's in every presentation that I give. Uh, just uh, try to maintain that focus on we've got to prevent the lint contamination from ever happening from plastic. It's it's not that we don't have some research going on to try to try to detect and emit it from the from the lint, but we've got to keep it from ever getting in there, uh, and and that's where a lot of that focus has been. Mm -hmm. Spent some educational videos. National Dinners did one a few years ago on the proper handling and removal of the of the John Deere wrap. Right. Uh, the most recent National Cotton Council actually has several chapters uh, where it not only at the gen, aimed at the gen, it's also aimed at the production and the producers mm -hmm. and the haulers, the people who are staging the modules for when they're picked up, uh, the proper uh, how to handle those when they are picked up. Right. Because we find that that if the module arrives at the gen in, say, pristine shape, condition, mm -hmm. no no tears, no, tears, no, no burst, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. nothing like that, then we're much more likely to get that wrap off and there not be any of the plastic left in the in the seed cotton. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the focus. I mentioned um, some of the research. Um, several of the gens have put cameras in the module feeders you know, with and they're and they're focused on, on on the this the spike cylinders mm -hmm. so that they can slow it down, stop it long enough to be able to detect if there's any there. Uh, that's that's one thing that's going on. There's also uh, a prototype research project that will be included in at least two gens, where they will have and this is work uh, USDA ARS out of Lubbock. Um, all the gen labs are involved with 
uh, with uh, contamination contamination research. Right. But there, it's actually a series of eyes, uh, uh, electronic, electronic eyes, mm-hmm. which can detect the plastic <clears throat> based on a color that's not not the color of cotton. And there is a series of of air nozzles which. Once it's detected, and this is at the feeder apron, mm-hmm. that's the thinnest place that you can sure. you can have a, a see through that bat effectively. And uh, if it detects the plastic, it it, it will emit it. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, we'll we'll have some good results this year, and that's something that will be available for gems in the future. Again, the best line of defense is for that never to get ended. Exactly. Exactly, Harrison. Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate your time and appreciate your input on where we are with uh, with the ginning industry right now. We're all keeping our fingers crossed uh, that we have sort of a, a smooth and relatively problem-free season, uh, particularly considering how late this uh, everything has started. Uh, and, a, and a safe season. Uh, that that's that's something else that we we stress uh, is uh, is safety. We want our we want our employees and our generous to be as safe as possible. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll be right back with the rest of the Cotton Companion. Okay, well, we want to give a big thank you to Harrison Ashley of the National Cotton Council. He is yet another example of the people over there at the council who who just day in and day out go to bat for this industry, and uh, we were happy uh, that he could make some time to speak with us. All right, that's going to just about do it for this installment of the Cotton Companion podcast. Uh, we want to thank Phytogen for sponsoring us, and we want to thank you, dear dear listener, uh, sincerely for joining us. If you like what you're hearing, tell your buddies about us. They can get to us in three ways. The first is going to cottongrower.com forward slash companion. Uh, the second, subscribing to our channel on iTunes or wherever it is that you find your podcasts on your uh, cellular phone. And the third way, the best way, sign up for our weekly e-newsletter, the Cotton Grower e-news, And you can do that by going to www.cottongrower.com forward slash subscribe. And uh, from there, you can find your way to our e-news subscription. You just got to give us your uh, e-news address, email address rather, and uh, our e-newsletter will hit your mailbox on Tuesday mornings like clockwork. Uh, So also, please make sure you're following us on social media. We are at Cotton Grower Mag on Twitter. And on Facebook, you can find us by simply searching for Cotton Grower Magazine. Uh, We hope you are enjoying our latest issue. That's the October Product Guide. The November issue is due in your mailboxes here in a couple of weeks' time, so it'll be hitting your mailbox about the time we come back to you with the next episode of The Cotton Companion. So, this podcast is produced by the great Tyler Hatch. He works at the mothership Meister Media Worldwide in beautiful Willoughby, Ohio. Uh, My name is Beck Barnes, and I will be back with you in two weeks for the next episode of The Cotton Companion. For now, on behalf of my own Cotton Companion, Jim Stebman, we wish you and your farm all the best. Phytogen thanks you for listening to this edition of The Cotton Companion. To learn how you can thrive with Phytogen, go to phytogen.com. 